Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition fields to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking science versus bro science. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 140 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we are talking about science versus bro science. Is there a gap between science and what actually goes on on the fitness floor? And is there a gap between science and what has been maybe tried and true and done over generations and multiple decades with the, I guess, bro community? Nicole, I'll say it like that. Mm -hmm. And I think, Nicole, do we have actually a definition of bro science? That's a good question. I mean, do you want my definition of bro science? You give me your definition and then I'm going to do an urban dictionary search. Oh, okay. My definition is basically the experience of years of bodybuilding community and what they basically have taught us about how they have been successful in the industry. Okay. But I think it generally has kind of a negative connotation, right? I think it does now. I don't think it did then. Yeah. Okay. I guess I'll take it. I mean, when you, we, you and I talked about it in one of our very first episodes, we would flip through magazines and read, read the training splits. Yeah. The and at the time, a lot of yeah. that stuff we thought was science. We, you know, was yeah. I'll I'll say this though. You know what I'm the, the, I think the term developed a little bit later because that's when the actual science, like the the field of exercise science, really blossomed. Mm -hmm. And so that's where they really started studying this stuff more so than they were then. Yeah. So I think a lot has changed. And now there are some things that are deemed as bro science that we're, we're going to kind of look at them and, and say whether or not we think they are bro science and should be categorized in that way. And we're just going to yeah. talk about, you know, the differences between the two. The definition on Urban Dictionary of bro science is word of mouth knowledge passed off as facts primarily among bodybuilders and weightlifters generally spouted most by guys who have used loads of steroids and hard huge have no idea what is happening to their bodies and then share that same cluelessness with others who make the false assumption that their experience means that they have knowledge okay so i think that's what that, i said i think that's a little bit more harsh based on what we've talked about that we're going to highlight in this episode today yeah. Well, what I also would say to that is I think a lot of the experience and the things that they've done based on that definition, what's different about it then versus now is that it's evolved. We've learned, we know better, we're doing better. And so we're now teaching better as coaches. And so I think that's, if if it hasn't, if I think the people that get stuck in the bro science are the people that have not evolved to what we know now. Yeah, but on the flip side, I also think that there are people that are stuck in the science science that think exactly. that's the end all be all. So those Ooh. are the things that we're going to mm -hmm. highlight and cover right now. So yes. Nicole, let's get into the first one, training a body part once a week versus multiple times a week. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? When I first started out in training, I followed that and did it myself. I, I gave workouts to clients that way. Over the years, you evolve as a trainer, you learn and you do better. And now I approach things very differently with my clients. So I believe training body parts multiple times a week 
has benefits for a particular person or a person that has time to do those types of workouts. But I also still think the person that I have that is working a million hours and only can work out twice a week, I, I still can give them, you know, two total bodies and they still make change. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I still do sometimes training with clients where they only train a body part once a week more because of a scheduling issue or um, a priority of how much they can yeah. train. Well, um, we're talking about it more so from a science versus bro science. I know, but so, I mean, the science versus bro science is I would love people to train multiple times a week. Listen, if I had that option for every client, that would be epic. Absolutely. Outside of real life application, though, mm -hmm. what I'll yes. say is this. Can you train a body part once a week and have it grow? Yes. But the current body of literature states that if you stimulate that, basically, if you stimulate a muscle every 72 hours, that you're going to increase muscle protein synthesis and keep it elevated rather than it dropping all the way down and then having to elevate it again the following week. So what the research shows is that you will benefit more on that individual body part if you train that body part multiple times a week. Now, does that mean you have to do that? Absolutely not. What I would say is probably still relevant today is going to be if you have a body part that just grows from a genetic standpoint, like for example, mm -hmm. my arms do not need work mm -hmm. more than once a week. So I can train my arms once a week and then lagging body parts. And this is what we used to do in bodybuilding is lagging body parts we would train multiple more. times a week. So if I wanted to bring my legs up, I would train my legs twice a week and everything else I trained once a week. Mm -hmm. So can you grow doing a grow split? Yes, absolutely. Is it more beneficial to do not a bro split? Yes, to train multiple times a week. And the other thing that I'll say is back to the arms example that I gave is what people don't realize is that oftentimes when people are doing bro splits, like arms, for example, or shoulders, biceps, triceps, and your shoulders, especially your front delts and your rear delts, they get trained when you're doing any push-pull movement. Push -pull. Yeah. So by default, you're doing those muscle groups multiple mm -hmm. times a week. So I would say for any people, unless you're really trying to bring up your arms and your shoulders, you don't necessarily need to train those body parts. And this is just my opinion. You don't need to train those specific body parts multiple times a week. You can train them once a week because they're going to get hit anyway. So to do arms twice a week, I, I don't think unless you really need to bring it up, you can even train it. You could do three days a week, right? But unless you really need to bring it up because it's a lagging body part, then you can do so. But outside of yeah. that, I think in terms of the where the research is, how I would design my programs today, and Nicole, based on what you said, I think you would agree with this, that it would be more beneficial to train all of your body parts multiple times a week. So if you set up your program in a push-pull, push-pull, lower, lower, or push-pull, push, pull, lower, full body, like whatever that looks like. Uh, I think it's going to be wildly beneficial for you to stimulate and activate those muscles at multiple different intervals throughout the week. Yes, I absolutely agree. In a perfect world, that would be, and that is what most of my clients do anyway. Well, I guess most of your clients are living in a perfect world then. Yeah. But you know, listen, I'm going to, this entire podcast, I am going to, I always have and always will be navigating the middle. So the bro science and the science science, I'm always in the middle, probably for everything that we're going to talk about. So because I always say that it depends, I'm just going to throw that right out there at the beginning. 
<laughs> rolling my eyes at you here. I okay. know that's okay. You can. Moving on to the next one, low volume versus high volume in terms of how many reps and how many sets you do. I want to talk about this because I used to catch shit for when I was personal training back in, I want to say like 2010 on, I mean, I was training before that, but around that time, people around me started to get really sciencey with their programming and I would do a ton of volume. I would do a ton of reps. So I'd be on like a dumbbell bench press doing 20 reps and mm-hmm. I would do 20, 30 reps leg press. I mean, Nicole, you've done some of those brutal workouts with me. And yeah, a lot of people then were like, the rep range for hypertrophy is six to 12. And you need to be within that rep range. And now this is the problem with being so tied to the science or dedicated to the science where it's the Mm -hmm. end all be all. Because now we find that the rep range doesn't matter as long as you're going to or coming close to failure. What does that look like? zero to three reps in the tank. So if I do 20 and I am at failure or close to it, I'm going to get the same benefit as if I did 10 and I was at failure or close to it. Now, what I'll say is this, and if you take two different bodies, I have done programs where I've had a friend of mine do a similar program to mine where it was high volume And I responded way better and he responded way better to a lower volume program. So I don't think that you can really look at it and extrapolate from a science perspective and say, it's the end all be all because everybody's got different muscle fibers, different ratios of type one and type two muscle fibers. Some are more dominant in type one, some are more dominant in type two. So with that being said, I don't really think that you can make a statement, especially we're looking at the research right now. Somebody might just grow better and build more muscle doing higher volume and another individual could be the complete opposite. Yeah. So then you support my it depends response (laughs) to this. But I also want to say, if I can, I say this all the time, every rep counts. So if you're doing six reps, 10 reps, 15, 20, 25, whatever your rep range is, and you're not plugged in from a mind-body connection to each of the reps that you're doing, like every rep counts. Like, yes, you have to leave reps in the tank at the end. You have to push to almost failure. All those things count. But I also think quality movement is also an important piece to quality reps. Like, if you're not, you know, warming up properly, if your body is not functioning well, like if you have a shoulder that doesn't function well, if you have tightness in the chest, weakness in the hip flexor, something may be biomechanically off. You can do all the reps you want, but things aren't going to function well and you aren't going to build adequate strength. So you have to make sure that the body is prepped, ready to go and functioning and that every rep that you do is a quality rep. I really do believe that because as a dancer in my early years lifting, I had a lot of injuries and until I really fixed how my body functioned, my reps and my workouts themselves got better as I became better equipped to be able to lift. Well, that's where we talk about you can't build fitness on dysfunction. Exactly. And I think that's a big piece to your rep range. I mean, I get what you're saying in terms of high versus low. I'm just going one step below that. But outside of the exceptions to the rule, like let's say somebody's functioning properly, I don't think it matters. I think you need to train in the way that is best for you in that regard. And I think some people will respond differently to a different style of program, whether it be high volume or low volume. 
All right. So moving along to the next one, Nicole, periodizing your program versus not periodizing your program. Periodizing your program is essentially you go through different phases. Uh, you, you're doing different strength cycles. You're doing hypertrophy cycles. You're doing muscular endurance cycles, and you're alternating between those. And they're supposed to build on each other. It's kind of like the NASM fitness model of... Mm-hmm of programming. Like they talk about linear periodization. There's also undulating periodization. There's various different ways that you can uh, periodize a program. I'll say this. I know of bodybuilders that, and I've experienced this myself, where as long as you're progressively overloading the program Mm -hmm. and you are getting stronger, able to do more reps at a higher weight over a period of time, the stimulus is still there. Now, well, I think the misconception that a lot of people get is that when I do a new program, I get sore. So that must be more effective. That doesn't mean just because you get sore that the program is more effective. You can not get sore at all and grow. Mm-hmm. The, the two have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. So I'll say, is periodizing a good idea? Yes. I do it with my clients because I don't want them to get bored. I want them to, I also want them to train different types of muscle fibers. But exactly. if we're talking purely from a growth standpoint, then I will say that bro science wins on that one. Because you don't necessarily need to periodize your program in order to build muscle. I think bro science is the whole, you have to be rip roaring sore after every workout to. I don't think so. You don't think so? No, I think that that's general population science. Like that's, that's somebody who doesn't understand the fundamentals of exercise and hasn't experienced it. Oh, I don't know about that. I would say that bro science is if you're not walking out the door, like with your arm falling off and you didn't push hard enough. No, I think the mindset. Here's what I'll say about that is I think that bro science is you, you really have to work hard. And I think that's, what's missing in a lot of, it's kind of like when I look at a lot of the science community and a lot of the people preaching a lot of what they're preaching, I'm like, this is the slack that they catch is that like, well, you don't even look like you're big, like you're just in the books. Yeah. Right. So there's, there are two things that need to happen. You need to be knowledgeable of the approach that you're taking. And you also need to work, your ass off in order to get where you want to go. All right. So let's go on to the next one. Bro science says that you need to eat six meals a day and you need to eat every two hours and you need to get protein in every two hours. Science says that there's no difference. You have three to five meals and there's no difference beyond that. Nicole, any thoughts on that? Well, I definitely am not for the bro science on this one. I'm I mean, I'm all for flexible dieting. I all I believe that as long as you're hitting your staying under your calories, hitting your calories or in your deficit and have a blend of foods that you love that you can still achieve a goal. Okay. And three to five is like the optimal yeah. range. I, yeah. I've done both. We've talked about this on many episodes before. When I competed, I did the six meals and a one in six. I did carbs in the morning and five of the rest of my meals. I didn't have carbs, blah, blah, blah. I didn't feel like there was much of a difference doing that versus the way I eat now, which is four meals a day and everything even throughout the day. I actually am healthier now than I am then. And I'm definitely stronger. <laughs> I'm sure there's an argument for both sides on that, because if it's what you've done, I was listening to a bodybuilder, an episode of another podcast, and he was saying he's carried meals around for the past 25 years and he eats every two hours and it's the way he lives and he feels great. And that's, he'll, he'll never change. And it's his methodology and his success. I mean, who's to argue with him if that's the way he feels good and he lives? If I do four and I feel great and I'm hitting all my goals and I feel strong, it can both happen in either situation. 
Yeah. I'll say two things about this. One, three to five, the the whole basis of this is that eating protein frequently is said to stimulate muscle protein synthesis further. And what the research says is that we're not exactly clear where it is, but anywhere between three and five boluses of protein. So if you're eating adequate protein for the day, which A, is the most important thing that yeah. we talk about, and B, protein, protein feeding frequency and distribution, those are the next two important pieces when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. But the research says anywhere between three and five, like beyond that, if you're eating six, seven, eight meals a day, you're not further stimulating. I would say this too, if I was competing, if I were to compete in bodybuilding today, I would, I don't eat that way now. I eat four meals a day now and I'm good. I can still grow. I I can still build muscle. I can lose weight. I can do all things that I want to do as long as mm-hmm. I'm accounting for my calories and my total protein intake. And then my carbs and fat are just whatever. But if I were to get back on stage, I don't know if it's ritualistic or what, I would revert back to six meals a day and I would be more comfortable. I'd be more comfortable doing that. And the other piece that I would say is when we're looking at scientific research, we're not evaluating people who are on PEDs Mm -hmm. and there may be a wild difference with people that we just don't know. And we'll never know because nobody's going to fund that type of research, but you know, maybe six meals or seven meals. Listen, Jay Cutler, I think said used to eat 10 meals a day and he'd wake up, set an alarm in the middle of the night, which I don't think is optimal for growth, but who am I to argue with Mr. Olympia, right? I watched Jay Cutler in an interview with somebody and the guy was talking, was asking him, have you ever like followed the science when it came to your training? And he's like, no, I just did what the guys that came before me did right. that had the greatest physique. And can you argue with that? No, absolutely not. No science can convince this guy who is for four years straight, the number one bodybuilder in the entire world that what he was doing was, well, it's not scientific, right? So yeah. I guess my point is there's some truth to what they're doing and what was basically like the batons passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. I mean, you can't argue experience either. I, I understand that there's there, there may not be science behind every person's experience, individual experience. But if someone has had success, it, it makes sense that you're going to listen to what they have to say. You know, and I tell clients this all the time. You pick you pick and choose some of the things that you think might be a good match for your lifestyle. Like if you're someone that can eat six meals a day and eat two before you do your workout and, you know, make sure that you're in a good fed state. I mean, you can play around. It, it's not going to hurt anything. Be to, the difference no, between four and six not. meals. Right. I so, would, right. So I would say to your point, Nicole, is that it may hurt your lifestyle. And I don't think it's feasible <laughs> yeah. to ask people back when I was bodybuilding in my early days as a trainer, I used to tell people you got to eat six meals a day. But now I'm like, as a normal human being, you don't need to. And as a normal human being, you can eat three to five and be wildly successful. So yeah, that's where we're at with that. Nicole, the next thing I want to get into is the anabolic window. So the anabolic window, you know, it's interesting because people say 30 minutes. I used to think an hour, but let's call it 30 minutes because that's what I hear most often. It basically states that if you don't eat within a 30 minute period or you don't consume protein or a protein shake within 30 minutes after your workout that you're going to lose all your gains, right? You're not going to build adequate muscle. And I'll say this, I can't tell you how many times, even during contest prep, I 
delayed a meal and didn't have protein immediately after a workout. And I don't think that it hurt me. And I'll say what we look at now from a research standpoint is that number one, I think supplement companies really push that hard. And I think that's where a lot of it came from. You need to have a whey protein shake after every workout and it needs to be the labels would say it too. 30 within 30 minutes outside or 40 minutes outside of your workout. What the research shows now is that it's more of like a garage door than it is a window. So what I mean by that is when you work out, you're increasing muscle protein synthesis. And when you consume protein after your workout, you're increasing muscle protein synthesis further. Now, when we look at the trend of muscle protein synthesis after your workout, it stays elevated for like 36 hours. By 36 hours, it's tapering down, approaching that 36 hours. But your muscle protein synthesis from the stimulus of your workout is elevated for a lot longer than we would have anticipated. So taking advantage of that window is you have a lot bigger of an opportunity and you have a lot more time than we once previously thought. Now, what I'll say in addition to that, though, is if you didn't eat anything before your workout or you didn't have protein before your workout, it would be more beneficial for you to eat directly after your workout. And I'll say that the anabolic response also does start to taper off. So I would still say that within an hour or two, you still want to have some type of protein. You don't want to delay that for much longer than that. That's how I feel about it based on what I've read currently. I just eat when I'm hungry after I work out. I really don't. I've never really followed any type of timing post-workout because when I finish a workout, I'm not hungry. So I really do just pay attention to my hunger cues. Within an hour to an hour and a half, I usually am starting to get hungry for a meal. So I really just follow that. That's just my personal choice. I always have to have two meals before a workout, though. So maybe that's why it sits better for me. Well, it's context dependent, right, Nicole? Yeah. So if we're talking about just the whole concept is maximizing yeah. muscle protein synthesis for somebody who's like, I'm really worried about increasing my muscle and I want to do everything I can. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, if you're eating good quality, healthy, strong meals, I think you'll be okay. That's my opinion. Yeah. But I think there's something to be said for eating around your workout as well. It's like, it's just like carbs. We talk about carbs to fuel your workout. I recommend that people have, if I have somebody, for example, I had a client that I spoke to this week and we just reduced her calories by 150 mm -hmm. and her carbs are relatively low because her calories are pretty low. So yeah. what I said is in terms of distribution, if you're going to have some meals that don't have carbs so that you can hit those numbers, yeah, it's best to group your carbs either right before or right after the workout. And then this is where the coaching piece comes in where Nicole, oh, yeah. you, you would do, you would have done the same thing. Yeah. She said, I don't normally eat before my workout. And I said, okay, then don't eat before your workout. If that's right. how you don't feel well eating breakfast, you get nauseous, whatever the case mm -hmm. is. But then just make sure that you have your carbohydrates after your workout because protein helps to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but carbohydrates do two things. One, they fuel your workouts, especially if you're doing lifting. And two, they slow down the catabolic response. So they they kind of like blunt the response of catabolism, which is breaking down muscle, which is what you're doing during your workout. So I said, okay, at the very least, you're right. Yes, do what works for you. Mm -hmm. um, but in a context where people want to build muscle, Listen, protein feeding frequency, you're going to want to have anywhere between three and five. And that's probably going to land sometime, some at some point around your workout anyway. Yeah, yeah, agree. I agree.
All right. So bro science versus science science. Bro science will say you can't flexibly diet. You, you've got to have quali quality foods, build quality mass. Science will say you can fit the foods you enjoy and be flexible. I will also go as far as to say that science also supports the notion that if you're eating predominantly whole foods and quality foods, you're going to have better outcomes in terms of sticking to your plan because it's going to make you satiated. You're going to have fiber. You're going to have adequate proteins. You're not going to have things that are pre-digested or pre-processed. So it's going to benefit you, I think, on both ends. I don't think you need to eat 100% whole foods, but I do think that there is something to be said for eating quality foods. And I think that I've had better experience myself personally when I've had whole quality foods in terms of building muscle rather than I've seen people like, oh, I'm in show prep. I'm going to have a protein bar for a meal. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Like you're in, <laughs> you're in yeah. show prep. Like that's not a meal. That's not, a you meal. need to eat food. I'm okay with people having a little bit in there. I eat a protein bar once a day, but I don't count that as like an actual meal. So yeah. I, and when in competition, it was just all whole foods. So I would say it's best practice on both ends of the spectrum to eat whole unprocessed foods. But I will also say that, listen, I these days, I you can still lose weight. I had gummy bears and I fit them into my food journal and I was completely fine with that. And I'm still down two pounds this week. So mm -hmm. with that being said, you can give yourself a little bit of leeway, but not too much because quality foods do in fact build quality muscle and they do yield quality results and they help you to adhere to your program. Yeah, I completely agree on everything that you're saying. I am an advocate for the flexible side of things simply because all of our listeners know I'm a huge into having a very strong, healthy relationship with food. And I think if that is the foundation of whatever your goal is, programs, workouts, nutrition, anything. If you have a good, strong relationship with food, whatever that is for your personal goal, for you as the individual, it's easier to make good choices. It's easier to give yourself freedom to have gummy bears and there's no guilt or shame. Like I feel like that's a very deep, this is a deeper conversation for me when it comes to food choices, but everybody is so different. Like I think you have to really know your client, know the person, know yourself, and the spectrum of which of of where you fall on that is going to be dependent on what your food and nutrition program looks like when you come into entering a goal, what it looks like when you're working with your coach, and then what it looks like when you're done, and then how you feel about the foods that you surround yourself with, and then the choices you make from there. But I absolutely think if you're trying to really dial it in from a health standpoint, forget about even physique. Whole foods, healthy choices are always going to win over a really shitty diet. Yeah. I'll say this. I had a client the other day say to me, I've lost a bunch of weight in the past and I always felt restricted and yep. I don't feel like I'm deprived of anything. Amen. He went to the Yankees game. He ate whatever he wanted. He got back on track. Like I always say, you're always only one meal away from getting back on track. So with that being said, I'm a huge advocate for flexible dieting, but I do want to see predominantly whole foods in your nutrition plan. All right. So Nicole, let's get into the next one, which is fasted versus fed state cardio. This is something that I've known since the beginning of time, since my bodybuilding, that fasted cardio was basically just bro science saying that you have to, and Nicole, I 
already hear you in, <laughs> in my head. Well, it depends on what you want to do in your lifestyle, but I'm going to just talk about it from a standpoint of effectiveness mm-hmm. in terms of losing weight. What the research currently shows is that if you do fasted cardio, you're going to oxidize more fat while you're fasted doing that cardio because you don't have that energy availability. You don't have the carbs to break down that you ate from that meal. So you will oxidize more fat because that energy has to come from somewhere. However, what's shown is that later in the day, you end up oxidizing less fat and you use more carbohydrates. So it kind of balances itself out. And Mm -hmm. then to take it even a step further, when we look at studies on, I think it was Brad Schoenfeld that did this research where you actually compare, okay, let's put two different groups of people. We'll do fasted cardio. We'll do fed cardio. We'll have them in an isocaloric manner where they're eating, they're both groups are eating the same amount of calories, their macronutrient distribution are equal. They lose the same amount of weight. There's no significant difference between the amount of weight that they lose. Now, being to Nicole's point here, obviously, <laughs> if you're somebody like my client that I brought up earlier, yeah, that doesn't want to eat before their workout, that's totally fine. But from an advantageous, like it's not more advantageous to do fasted versus fed state cardio. If you want to do it, it's a preference thing. You're not going to get an added benefit. Well, what I find interesting about this is that many people that come into the gym earlier in the, like really early in the morning, let's say 5 a.m., they're not eating a meal before they come in, not on purpose to be fasted. That's just how they live because of their work schedule. They come into the gym early, they do their workout, they shower there and they go to work. For people that come in later in the day, they're eating because they get up later. And I think it's really interesting where the terms fasted versus fed like starts to gain momentum. But a lot of people kind of live in either state just because of a sk- the way they live their life and their schedule. But again, I agree with you. I don't think either one is necessarily better than. I just think if you have a schedule where one fits better for you, then go for it. But I don't think it's going to make a, ch- a difference or change in yeah. how you it's get not, results. I can say for certain that it's not. But the what I'll say is that a lot of bodybuilders are still under the notion that fasted cardio yeah. is better. And a lot of influencers, I see them on Instagram, fasted cardio, I do it because X, Y, and Z. It's nonsense. Yeah, I've really, again, I really believe a lot of that stuff is marketing. Like you were talking about the protein the protein window eating like post-workout, a lot of that stuff is really driven by selling a product. What are you selling people? Cardio? You can't sell people cardio. No, no, no. You're selling people results. It's not about the protein. From a coaching coaching standpoint? Yes. Especially like if a coach says you have to do things this way, this to me is a red flag. If you find a coach that's like, you have to do fasted cardio, you have to eat protein within an hour of your workout. You have, have, have. If everything is a have to, that to me is a red flag because that's not about an individual and trying to help them build a lifestyle that's going to get them results, not just in the short term, but in the long term. But if you have to do all these things, first of all, you're not going to you're going to have to do that for the rest of your life. Then if you want to keep the results that you get and we know that that doesn't work if it's a have to. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't have to do things to get healthy and reach your ultimate body. That's not what I mean. But there are a lot of ways to get to the water, <laughs> a lot of paths. So if everything is a have to, like you have to do fasted cardio, then you need to rethink it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to lift weights, but how you do it 
the method in which you get there is going to be different for every individual. You don't have to. You could be skinny fat. Well, yes, I guess if you want, but that's going to suck for life later on. Yeah, absolutely. So Nicole, fasted cardio versus fat state cardio. That was the last one. I We were going to go over some supplements, but I, I think we can probably save that for another time. Okay. Uh, going over some supplements. Maybe we can do a full episode on debunking some supplements or like pros and cons or do these supplements work or not. We yeah. can dive into what the research says, practical application, how to use them. I think that would be another great episode. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to end this episode here. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 